0: This is Monica Perez, and my guest today is Jeremy Kuzmorov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine, which has been exposing U.S. covert action since 1978. Jeremy is also the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. He specializes in U.S. foreign policy and modern U.S. history and also has a background in criminology. He has taught at the University of Tulsa as well as Bucknell and has a PhD from Brandeis. So strap on your tanks. We're going deep with a dive master. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. My pleasure to be on the show. (laughs)
0: I'm super excited to talk to you. I love your articles. I love the work you're doing. I'm very suspicious of everyone. So I always read, I read articles like that for the punchline. It's either, so we need to go to war or so you need to buy gold. But your articles never end with any kind of <laughs> hidden agenda. It's just good old fashioned journalism. And I really appreciate it. And I, and it's so unusual that I wanted to ask you like how you, I mean, you must have to renew your commitment to personal integrity over and over again. And I'm certain, without knowing the, any stories, I'm certain that it has cost you academically or in mainstream journalism. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about your commitment and and if it has cost you anything.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of institutions have become corrupted and there's always some kind of political agenda and, you know, uh, I mean, I appreciate the tribute you gave me. Yeah, I mean, above all, you know, I'm trying to tell the truth and that might, you know, you might identify with one political faction in general, but, um, you know, you might have find something that, uh, you know, say like, I mean, I, I, I'm more on the left, but, you know, sometimes you investigate stuff and you find, say, corruption uh, on the left, or you're going to write something that uh, is not exactly the line they're taking. So they kind of frown on you. And then you don't quite fit in the other side. Uh, so you're kind of in the uh, netherworld, you know, if you want to make a living. Uh. And, yeah, unfortunately, higher education, I think, has uh, become corrupted. And it's sad to see uh, the betrayal of, uh, of the ideal of, you know, the uh, honest, independent uh, scholar and investigator become very, very politicized. And certain topics are kind of taboo and you know i had uh, i worked in academia for many years uh but some of the topics i introduced with students, like i did a course on the history of the cia and you get kind of funny looks you know but that's obviously a very important topic to understand u.s foreign policy and i mean especially the cia is critical because the united states has this pretense to be a republic but really function an empire so it ends up uh, carrying out you know a lot of the covert operation more than other empires. So if you really want to understand the United States foreign policy, you have to look at the you know, covert operation in the CIA. But they start to look you know funny at you in the, in the uh, faculty clubs
0: <laughs> and <laughs> it's it's. It's just the the dog that didn't bark. Like, how can they pretend that it's not, it doesn't exist? I mean, how do they present the history of the CIA? It is important. They can say, well, it's not what you say it is, but let's talk about what they say it is. But they just ignore it, in my experience.
1: Yeah, a lot of it is either suppressed, ignored, or they'll kind of sugarcoat it, or maybe they'll pick one or two. Like, I think it's acknowledged, you know, like in the 50s, you know, when the CIA had a coup in Guatemala and Iran, a lot of people now will kind of acknowledge, oh, that was something bad. You know, they might bring that up in a class. I mean, even the Eisenhower Library, which I visited in Kansas, uh, which I found to be actually the best presidential library because they did offer some. They mentioned, like, they had a whole exhibit about Eisenhower, and I mean, most of it was flattering, but they did address like the coup in Iran and like they they kind of you know suggest it wasn't such a moral undertaking. So I, I give them credit for that. But yeah, I mean, you know, maybe like if this happened 60, 70 years ago, it might be you know, brought up in the class and a college course, you know, rarely, but maybe, but, you know, once you get more to the present day, that is just like, you know,
0: no. <laughs> well, what you're talking about that era, I happen to be reading a couple of books that refer to that. One is about Operation Gladio. There's a fairly new book out about like the Vatican, the CIA and, what happened in Italy when they were trying to put up false flag operation strategy of tension against the communist party, which was pretty, it was pretty popular there. And that tied into something else I was reading about the CIA and Vatican II and their influence there under the kind of guidance of Henry Luce. I don't know if he was like the one who guided it, but he, I think he's the one who coined the expression that the American century
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, that his idea was to carry on, the British kind of legacy as the world empire, whether overt or covert. And I feel like <clears throat> I'm really trying to dig in to understand like the true nature of power in the world and, and that I haven't really cracked the code on that, but a lot of arrows seem to point on that as being the moment which goes hand in hand with the beginning of the CIA. And I want to get into some of this real big picture stuff with you. And one of the big questions I want to ask as as we go along, I want to start talking a little bit about Ukraine, but um, with an eye to what is the kind of big picture here? I mean, is the CIA running the world? Is America running the world? Is it you know, how much give and take is there at the highest levels? And that brings me specifically to the question about Ukraine seems to me now we both know and everyone listening to this probably knows that the U.S. is the one who did a coup in in Ukraine in 2014. And Russia, I thought, was being very patient and not responding, especially in how we were treating the people in Donbass. But it seems like right now, this year, last year, the U.S. at least made a an, an concerted effort to provoke Russia by just not backing off the NATO thing, even though they probably couldn't get a unanimous approval for Ukraine to go in NATO. They just kept pushing. And I think they provoked Russia and and i just you know that makes it look like there's definitely two factions at the highest level but sometimes it looks like they cooperate i wonder if you have a, a view on why we did that and how it folds into the big picture
1: hmm. well yeah that that's a, a great question and great uh uh segue into it i mean i, I don't have all the answers uh uh you know uh, to your question yeah about who controls this you know who's at the top uh it's hard to know i mean but you know, as far as U.S. strategy towards Russia and Ukraine, I think we do see a clear strategy of trying to provoke regime change within Russia. Uh, that's, I think, fairly clear-cut the motive behind it. Uh, and that was that you know they want to go back to the days, uh, you know the days of the 1990s, because after the fall of, of Soviet communism, uh, the Russian leader with you know Boris Yeltsin, who was heavily supported by the Clinton administration. And in fact, in '96, the Clinton administration put in a, a lot of money to secure Yeltsin's election. And Yeltsin uh, pushed for these, you know, shock therapy, rapid privatization uh, of the Soviet era command economy, and that uh, allowed, and he allowed Western corporations to come into Russia and seize control uh, of Russian uh, assets and state industry, uh, along with you know local oligarchs and then Putin, you know, Putin was designated as as Yeltsin's successor, and he was kind of playing along, you know, and Yeltsin was very pro-West, he acquiesced to NATO expansion, and many Russians saw him as kind of a, a sellout, uh, a horrible leader, I and mean, he was very corrupt, and at the end of his time, he was extremely, he became an alcoholic, and he was completely out of touch. Now, Putin was uh, designated Yeltsin's successor, and kind of uh, was supposed to continue with his policies of pro-Western policies and enabling Western corporate uh, influence in Russia. But at a certain point, he became more assertive and more nationalistic. Uh, he opposed the Iraq War. He made a drive against local oligarchs, uh, some of whom were connected <coughs> to the United States or West. Uh, he took he slowly took measures to reassert. Russian national control over its economy to curtail national flight and to curtail some of these uh, Western corporations, uh, force them to pay taxes and prosecute white collar criminals. uh, uh, Magnitsky? Yeah. Bill Browder (laughs) was one.
0: Oh, yeah, right. He named him by name a couple of years ago. Putin did a speech. I remember. I wish I had that clip handy. He did a speech and he named Browder. It was by name, and people were like, "Who's that?" And I was like, "That was the whole that Magnitsky Act was a complete lie."
1: Yeah, and he was uh, robbing the Russian government, and uh, you know was charged with major case of tax evasion, and then he fled the country. So you know Putin actually prosecuted these people where uh, Yeltsin didn't. So they pursued a vendetta against him. And they saw, you know, and part of it also is that the U.S. after the fall of the uh, Soviet uh, Union uh, saw an opportunity to dominate the entire Eurasian region, which, as Big Neil Brzezinski, who the you know, grand strategist U.S. policy, uh, said, you know, following some uh, other uh, imperial architects like in Germany and Britain, said this is the key to world domination, control over Eurasia, in part because of the oil and gas riches. Uh, so they saw a real opportunity, and, and Yeltsin they knew was weak, but Putin was strong, you know, much stronger, and he would uh, really stand up for Russian interests and try and reassert more Russian control uh, in Eastern Europe and and Central Asia. So the U.S. has pursued regime change uh, against Putin, and I think the Ukraine war uh, fits into that strategy. I think they deliberately provoked an invasion uh, by arming, yeah, by provoking a coup first in 2014 arming Ukraine to the teeth. Hold on. You,
0: you think that they did the coup in order to precipitate an invasion? That they didn't just want Ukraine as a, another market?
1: Well, I think they did, but... Uh, they I were fine they with did. it. When
0: you hear, hear that leaked audio of Jeffrey Pyatt saying, like, we got to do this quickly before Russia reacts. So, yeah. did you ever hear that? Yeah, conversation. Yeah. They were plotting yeah. the too.
1: Well, I remember. Yeah, he said "fuck the EU." Yes, they have to get their guy in, not the EU's guy.
0: But he yeah, did I mean, say that Russia would react. That's true.
1: So he knew what happened. Yeah, it they, happen. and, uh, yeah. I think they knew, and I, I think they they are long term thinkers. Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine who knows the uh, CIA and neoconservative very well has said, "Never underestimate these people. You know, they're they're extremely ruthless, but they're extremely smart and far thinking. You know, they think three four steps ahead." So I think they were, uh, you know, the Brzezinski types uh, were thinking three, four steps ahead. And the ultimate goal was they knew perhaps that the the coup would provoke secession among the eastern uh, Ukrainian provinces who were tied to Russia. And perhaps they were pushing certain policy that would encourage conflict. And this would eventually draw the Russians in more. And they could bog them down like in Afghanistan. You know that was the strategy in the '80s to bring down the Soviet Empire was to bog the Russians in Afghanistan by arming the Islamic Mujahideen. So I think it's the same playbook, It comes from Brzezinski, and his acolytes are in Washington now and surrounding Biden, and his son is Brzezinski's son is the U.S. ambassador to Poland, which is a key country in all this. So, I did not know
0: that. I just know that his daughter is that talking head,
1: Mika. Yeah, his son's the ambassador to Poland. Wow, Poland so is so important president. right now. Yeah. So wow. I think it, their aim is to bog the Russians down and you know, weaken them. And you know they, they want to breach this alliance between Russia and China, weaken Russia and uh, bog them down Ukraine and, and crash their economy through sanctions. But I'm not sure the policy is working right now. Russia's economy is stronger than European economy, Europe is suffering, as is America, from the sanctions, and Russia appears to be reclaiming a lot of territory in Ukraine. They're slowly winning, and it's reflecting the headlines, like in New York Times today is, is acknowledging Ukrainian setbacks and stuff like that.
0: The I don't know if you saw this, but I just did a little show on a document from the Rand Corporation from 2019, which is not that long ago. Did you happen to see that where they said, we think we're not sure exactly how we're going to do this. We might uh, we're going to go to Belarus and see if we can flip them. But if not, then we're going to start to try to regime change there. And uh, maybe we'll provoke Russia with threats of having Ukraine join NATO and see if we can divert their resources and their attention and get mired in Ukraine. Exactly like Afghanistan and all that. But it's actually written out expressly in 2019 that they were. Kind of, you know, at a at a decision point, which pointed really exactly to what's happening right now and what you're saying. So you might might find it interesting to have that smoking gun in your arsenal every <laughs> once in a while.
1: Yeah, I've uh, seen that report. I think it's called "Extending and Unbalancing Russia." And yes, it's like a, a, an over blueprint for regime change. It makes yes. clear their intention.
0: There's like a twelve page one. They they very kindly summarized it, but if you click through, it's like 365 pages of just a blow yeah. by blow. And the u s. Army is was cited as being the uh, the the entity that commissioned that report. As part of like strategic, they do like a, every four years, they do a strategic assessment, I think. But it makes me uh, want to ask you the question, when you say Brzezinski, neoconservatives, they are trying to do the regime change. You know, the classic question is who is they? But when I looked at the Rand Corporation, who sits on the board, who established it, that's mostly the defense industry. And then you can look at other um, uh, other things. Like when I was reading about Gla- Gladio, a lot of that was banking, And I always think of the military industrial complex as defense, energy, and finance. And then now I feel like we're down to like big ag, big pharma, big tech is kind of the second gen of that. But is, I mean, do you see it, especially from your perspective from the left, which is, I'm a libertarian, so I'm always like government, 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 but now there's no, I call it the corpo governmental continuum. There's just, you know, you read the World Economic Forum stuff and they do things that are quasi legislative that aren't like, like let's get all the corporations to pull out of Russia and it's crippling and they pressure other companies. Well, we're black. We'll say we're not going to buy your stock. If you don't follow suit or World Economic Forum, you can't come to Davos if you don't do what we're asking. Do you, is your view that Brzezinski, Neocons, Kissinger, all of this stuff, Rand Corporation, even the U.S. Army, the CIA is just global corporations calling the shots or do you think there's something bigger going on or more subtle.
1: Hmm. Well, yeah, and I don't think our view would be any different. Um, um, I, I don't know. You know it, it's hard to pinpoint uh, exactly. Uh, I, you know, I can't say I have all the answers to that. I mean, clearly, yeah, I think you have a good analysis about these powerful uh, interests, the, you know, military, industrial complex, big energy, big agriculture, big pharma, I think they've all you know hijacked uh, government in the United States as well as other countries uh, and they're yeah nefarious, uh, you know very you know powerful forces internationally uh, who are able to manipulate uh, things around the world. So I, I, I think you have a good analysis, yeah, and
0: they and they collude overtly. So like you can see that. Say at Davos or other big things like that, there was one article I read from the Council on Foreign Relations about <laughs> establishing a North American Union. And they said, well, what we need for the North American Union, something like the Bilderberg Group that calls the shots in Europe. So and if you look at the Bilderberg Group, it is heads of state, which is totally illegal for any of our legislators or whatever to be involved in, if I recall correctly. But they do. So you have like um, it's everything, you know, it's it's the classic, you know, academia, media, politicians. And then you have all the corporate people, big philanthropy, and they go they go into one room And Fox News does not do thorough reporting on what's going on in there. So I consider that the conspiracy and that that's, you know, barring the possibility of lizard people and aliens and X-Files stuff, I think it might be what you see is what you get. But I also wonder when I look at, like Russia and China seem to have an alliance, but at this, you know, obviously are presenting a united front in this case. But you look at their... You know, they do play the game. I, I don't I, I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole you go, and I wouldn't blame you if you didn't because it can be distracting from pure journalism. But if you look back at Event 201, which happened in October 2019, there's also a 2017 document on Johns Hopkins called SPARS, where they're literally plotting, you know, month by month, year by year, how this COVID thing was gonna unfold. And at the Event 201, There was uh, the CDC head from here and the CDC head from China literally sitting shoulder to shoulder planning out the response to this, which is exactly what everyone did. So everyone was on the same page. Uh, Putin did put out a vaccine. How do you do you I mean, I'll tell you because I don't want to put you on the spot. But for me, I feel like it's not like these guys aren't statesmen. It's not like they're not power players. They know what's what has power and you know, crises have power. Putin never outed ISIS because he uses ISIS as an excuse to assert uh, his interests in Syria. So I feel like they don't need to just call everything out. They're not truthers. But do you, do you, you know, do you think that Russia and China have, uh, they're willing to play the game on the world stage? They're willing to you know, but they just, you can't cross a line with them or, you know, how do you think it works that some of the stuff they do seems kind of suspicious, like our own leaders. And some of it seems kind of righteous, like they're in acting in their country's own interest.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I I mean, I don't know if I have all the answers, uh, you know, it's hard to know for sure. I mean, it's clear at the beginning, I think point Putin uh, and, you know, Yeltsin before, you know, they wanted to join the club, uh, and, I mean, I think Yeltsin, you know, had wanted to join uh, NATO, but they they didn't allow uh, Russia in, and that's what, you know, caused this conflict. Uh, so it gives you the sense that maybe at times they're part of the club, and uh, other times, yeah, maybe uh, in their, the, the interests of the Western powers and countries that they need Russia and China as an enemy. I mean, how else are they going to justify these massive military expenditures? Uh, so. They can only let them in so much. They, they need to depict them as the enemy. And yeah, maybe some of that is for show. Uh, and they're going to cooperate a lot, maybe quietly behind the scene. I mean, in some way, they need each other economically. I mean, the U.S. economy is so dependent on China. Uh, you know, you wonder if this is just all for show. This conflict that's being provoked now with China I may mean, be cataclysmic for both countries economically as well as the world economy. Uh, if, a, if a hot war uh, actually broke out between the U.S. and China, so it, it makes you think maybe it's just like kind of game they they play: good cop, get bad cop. You know, one day they you know they they invite them in a little, and then they demonize them for a few That's,
0: years. Yeah, and I could see how as each each country. <laughs> could use that. I mean, you have to have an enemy, right? Really really makes the the whole power position way where if you ever read the report from Iron Mountain, they're like, what are we going to do without war? How are we going to control the population if we don't have threat of war? Yeah. So, that seems like it's just a basic tenet of uh, concentrating power, even in your own nation state, and and even in the report from Iron Mountain, it said we can threaten people with a world government, and then they'll come back and give us more loyalty. Like if you if you establish an international police force, they'll beg you to have a national police force. It was kind of interesting. So I guess there are either layers of it, or um, in the end, these power brokers do act in their own interests. But that that makes me more so. When you look at it from that point of view, it's very clear or it's it's clear to me that whether you're talking about the power players in the private sector, oligarchs or these heads of state, they seem to all be acting uh, kind of above ideology and in most cases, I would say above even national loyalty. So I I, like I was saying your maybe ideology is that that government's legitimate and, you know, it's not a crazy position, government's legitimate and it has legitimate functions. And I personally am so jaded that I feel like we'd be better off without government. But those are just ideals that, uh, you know, exist outside what we're really dealing with here, which is this real concentration of power, a technocratic uh, tyranny that's basically descending over the world or maybe two halves of the world if they're going to go with you know, Russia on one side and us on the other. It still doesn't make it much better that it's three billion people on one side and three billion on the other. If that is this, you know, digital currency and total surveillance. So I like that. I've read um, in some of the things that you've written that you know you don't. The ideological divide is second to um, at least spreading the truth or mounting a resistance i've never heard you say mount resistance but like how do you think is what's your vision or your philosophy on on what we can do and rather than allow ourselves to be divided on the stupidest stuff even now like with the trump biden you know that whole thing it's not even ideological it's just ridiculous it's just it's just completely Uh, Like, I feel like Trump took the ideology out of the right and replaced it with identity politics on the right. Like, and then it's just gotten superficial, worse, but superficial anyway. So what do you think about, you know, what, what's the answer for people like us who can still think and are worried about the us versus them?
1: Well, yeah, I think it's not to succumb to that, you know, partisan politics and division, because I think, yeah, that is part of the strategy of divide and rule uh that we're seeing play out is that this these you know partisan divisions are being deliberately played up and what's really needed yeah, as you say it's really not a left versus right issue it's it's the people versus the oligarchy and the people have to unify against the oligarchy to uh, try and restore or establish uh depending on your view of American history, some form of functioning democracy, where the government that exists functions on on, on behalf of the people, uh, and you know you can debate the level of taxes, uh, but we we want a government that, w- with the taxes you pay, is providing services to the people, uh, is acting in the people's interest, and not provoking wars. <laughs> Or world wars, are wasting all your revenue on on you know into black holes like Afghanistan, you know, weapons uh, into conflicts that have no purpose uh, or no moral value, like Afghanistan or Ukraine, and is spending that money on on improve, you know community improvement, infrastructure, uh, education, healthcare, and is not enacting policy that are going to destroy the economy like what they're doing. They're you know like the Russian sanctions are. Uh, uh helping to cause the inflation I mean there may be variety of factors causing the inflation uh but one of them you know the, the, the Russian conflict has exacerbated uh inflation so I mean it makes no sense for American taxpayer to be funding a conflict that's harming their own economy uh above all else so and that could trigger a nuclear war so it's yeah really these issues are not left versus right. You know, left-right, I see is is really an issue over taxation, and you can debate how much you want to tax people, or uh, how much you want to have a graduated scale of taxation uh, to fund the services uh, that the government pr- could provide. And there are legitimate debates about that. There'll always be debates, but the central issue really today is, is a government that is not accountable to the population, that is controlled by an oligarch. You know, that is an oligarchy that is dominated by a corporate uh, money and, and, and interests that have hijacked the government for their own purpose, and they're causing a dangerous world and calamities that have to be. Uh, reversed, or else we're all in big, big trouble. We're already heading down a bad, bad path.
0: I think it's interesting that you this is ultimately just a question of, you know, the taxations and what you want the governments to provide. And for me, I don't think I'm radical. So it's just ideologically, I think the government's a seat of power that will always be abused although you could go back in history and probably find with kings and stuff some of them cared about their people maybe Putin cares about Russia I don't know but what kind of gets uh, sticks in my craw is that we pay the same I, I think our tax rate is very close to like British tax rate but in in England or Europe which I don't admire their governments or their taxation regime or their socialism or anything but at basically the same tax rate they are demanding some services whereas for our taxes we're we're spreading death and destruction around the world you know like if you had to choose like old sweden might have been okay you know relatively speaking uh with the same kind of tax rate so but and i feel like As far as the two sides of the coin, like when you see Clinton and Bush kind of colluding in Mena, Arkansas back in the day, I feel like that was truly the end of any possible partisan distinction that that was anything more than just what you're selling the people to get them to vote half and half and then just be mad at each other because things aren't working. And I don't know if it was I don't know much about McGovern, but I have a feeling like that was the last straw, like the whole. JFK thing and um I look at those presents. I think of JFK Nixon Ford Reagan all of whom seemed like insiders at one level or another but all of them all of whom were taken out or threatened to be taken out JFK was killed obviously Reagan was shot Ford was shot at I think you might look at the VP on those two cases and Nixon I think that Watergate was a coup and and they took out his VP on a separate issue. People don't realize that. Like, What's the likelihood of that happening if they weren't really just trying to overtake the White House? So it seems to me like, at least during that period, even if you were kind of an insider who played the game, there was, I don't know if you want to call it a deep state or something, that was trying to take over. And I feel like now it's really taken over. I think the Bush-Clinton timeline really made it clear that that nobody's getting into that, the pole position, who isn't totally immersed in, uh, you know, I guess, I, I guess the way to think about it is like a deep state, like the CIA kind of intelligence apparatus, which I have to think is basically, you know, is is now just an arm of the global corporations. But, I mean, do you think that that timeframe was extremely significant like the assassination of jfk was kind of the beginning of the end do you have a you know in your study of modern u.s history do you feel like there was a tipping point
1: well yeah i think one tipping point was right at the end of world war ii i mean i think uh, the uh, roosevelt administration uh stood up to corporate interests and stood up to even you know some of the war hawks within his administration for instance uh, Roosevelt had a very progressive policy toward Russia. Uh, he, from the time he took uh, office in 1932, he restored – because uh, Woodrow Wilson had invaded Russia following the Russian Revolution – uh, and there's a hostile policy of trying to overthrow the Russian revolution but uh, and Bolshevik government. But when Roosevelt became president in 1932, he restored diplomatic relations with Russia, uh, building on a precedent of Abraham Lincoln, who had a, uh, had very good relations with Russia and understood that the, the relationship between the U.S. and Russia is very important among countries because these are among the two most powerful countries in the world. And especially in the nuclear age, uh, now Henry Wallace, you know, and, and the U.S. cooperated with Russia during World War II, of course, to defeat the Nazis. And then uh, Roosevelt's vice president from 1940 to 1944 was Henry Wallace, who was a very progressive. Uh, Figure, you know, uh, and Roosevelt again had stood up to large corporations with the New Deal. Uh, and, and Wallace was going to carry on the Roosevelt legacy, including especially with regards to Russia, because, uh, you know, Roosevelt uh, uh, had signed with Stalin the Yalta Agreement that had a vision of a peaceful post uh, uh, World War II order that accepted a Russian sphere of influence and in, uh, in power in Eastern Europe as a buffer against you know Germany since Germany hadn't dated and Wallace understood you know you have to uh, you have to understand try and understand a country and where they're coming from uh, and Wallace was the figure who did he had been in Russia he'd also been in China he was a very uh, worldly man very uh, keen intellect uh, he was going to carry on the Roosevelt legacy unfortunately those at the 1944 Democratic Party convention, there was in Chicago, there was a coup d'etat because Wallace was gonna be renominated as a fait accompli. You know, Roosevelt was sick at that convention, so uh it was known he probably wouldn't live out his term. So whoever was the vice president is the next president. And there was a mysterious blackout, as Wallace was about to be renominated, there was a mysterious blackout and they reconvened the next day. And apparently there was some horse trading done at night, you know, among the Democratic Party uh, power brokers. And they remove Wallace in favor of Truman, who was like a you know Truman was a simpleton who didn't even have a college degree, and he was tied with the Pendergast political machine and mafia in the state of Missouri. Uh, you know, compared to Wallace, who's this worldly guy, you know he, he was an Iowan who uh, had developed this uh, you know, f- a formula that uh, for uh, a corn seed, and you know, he was involved in some innovative agricultural projects. But he also had a newsletter and he covered world affairs, not just agriculture, but world affairs, like a very well-educated, well-informed, well-traveled guy, very sensitive guy. Instead, you get this easily malleable Truman who provokes the Cold War, drops the atomic bomb because you know, Wallace was saying, you
0: Establish know, established the OSS, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, Wallace was saying, you know, the the age of empire is over, you know. The British Empire is falling.
0: That's what JFK and, said, something like yeah.
1: that.
0: <laughs> His last and speech was like, this so, is...
1: I mean, yeah. yeah, and I see that's a major turning point like in American history hmm. because Truman Usher's in the Cold War, military-industrial complex is sustained, uh, and you know, horrible disaster yes. result from that. And then, yeah, you have other, I think, more pacifist uh, uh, people. As, uh, yeah, I think McGovern you know, had had campaigned on the Come Home America platform and was kind of channeling the energy of the sixties anti-Vietnam war movement. But the you know, a lot of the Democratic Party failed to support him. They defected to the Republicans. Uh, and, you know, the big money interest didn't back him. So and I think he made some mistakes in his campaign. He was soundly defeated. And that was really the last candidate, as he suggests. Who might have really tried to transform U.S. foreign policy in a peaceful way, but and the they said will always get their revenge. Yeah, yeah, they deep. said
0: that that's the end of the Democrat Party. They had to change it after that, and yeah. they did
1: exactly. We and can't I, have a I, party that actually does good things and you know sensible policies and you know it's for peace. We can't have that.
0: <laughs> I I wondered, and I want to get, I don't want to get to this yet, but I do wonder, or at all, not necessarily if. Um, They because I think Trump was a actually you asked once for maybe you ask all the time for story ideas. I would love to see you do a deep dive on Trump's backstory from like his uncle, who was a uh, had Tesla's papers. Apparently, he was an MIT professor, his ability to get a casino license and um, maybe coincidentally when his sister was a federal judge uh, his father's money all came from, or much of it came from government projects. I mean, I think that he was uh, an inside job myself, and mm-hmm. but I feel like they did it in order to uh, create, like pump up and then destroy any kind of populism that might come from the kind of flyover states. And I think that's maybe what they did with McGovern, but I want to get back to Roosevelt for a second. So I was raised by a World War II vet sailor who was in the Pacific and the Navy at that time. And he said that uh, he I found a book uh, after he died that was backdoor to war. And it was all like the State Department memos about Roosevelt plotting Pearl Harbor, leaving them out to dry. And I was always fascinated by that. I just couldn't believe it. And I was like, wow, this is some this is some deep truth early on. And then I realized that it was published by Regnery Press. Mm-hmm. Which I've also read is a CIA front, maybe, or somehow, somehow deep state related. I I don't know for sure, but I've been. I mean, I don't know at all. But I did read that, uh, and I just wondered. I wondered why they would do that. Like, why does one arm of the deep state push out that kind of stuff? And I and I can think of two reasons. One, I was going to say, and this was picking up on something else I'd heard you say about just creating like a lot of tension and strife, which uh, strategy of tension does tend to kind of escalate power to the top. I, I heard you say in, in the modern times that it may be used to promote the police industrial complex, which I hadn't heard that expression before, but until you used it and, and with Roosevelt, perhaps, I mean, I'd always thought of Roosevelt as a bad actor, especially since my, I was raised in a traditional conservative household that like he was just a bad guy, But it's possible from a different point of view, he really wasn't a bad guy or there were competing factions. I mean, I'll never agree with his ideology, but there may have just been competing factions. And the reason that they exposed him and slandered him, smeared him afterwards, was that they wanted to kind of bury his legacy, which was already kind of promised to be pretty big. And so maybe you can react to that. And also I've read that Stalin told Eleanor that that FDR was murdered. Did you ever hear that?
1: That I've never heard. That'd yeah, I read that twice. About that. Yeah. It's interesting. So it's definitely
0: out there. I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying yeah. it's out there. You'll see it now that I told you.
1: Okay, uh, yeah, I'd love to read about that. Yeah, because we've had done a series on political assassinations. and Warren Harding. Oh, you're surprised? Oh, yeah. I, 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 I think heard.
0: Warren Harding was assassinated, and I've seen that written up in uh, an old OSM manual saying, oh, and then we have like the silent ones, like oh. Harding.
1: Well, if you could do an article for us, that would be great. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm
0: just, I'm just a drive-by. Like I'm a total <laughs> okay. dilettante. I'm like, hey, here, I'm through. I'm giving it to you. <laughs> I'll send you some
1: information. I'll yeah, send I you the links. Do yeah. something on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Roosevelt is a mixed legacy. Yeah. Because with Pearl Harbor, I've read a lot about that. Yeah. I, I did an article about that uh, on December seventh this year, which was the 80th anniversary. Actually, the, it was surprising there wasn't that much media coverage about it. But yeah, I I found that there's very clear evidence of a cover up. I mean, they provoked just like they're provoking Russia you know, now. They were provoking Japan because they didn't like that Japan was establishing its own regional empire and was you know wanted to kind of lie with European empires and they couldn't accept that you know a non-white uh, country or race establishing its own empire. No, to challenge the European empire, in no way. <laughs> So they provoked them and they cut off their oil supply. You know, Japan, I guess, Achilles heel, but that doesn't have any oil. It's dependent on foreign oil imports. So by cutting off the foreign oil supply, they kind of, you know, backed yeah. them. To what Poland. could you do? They, yeah. Yeah. And then they applied these sanctions. For, you know, they ratcheted them up and they rejected any diplomatic solution. And then there's evidence they had... Uh, foreknowledge of the plans to attack Pearl Harbor, but they suppressed that information. And then on that day, it's obvious because George Marshall got the information very early in the morning that it was still night in Hawaii, and he could have used a scrambler phone, uh, which was a, a updated technology of that time, that would have got the message right away to Admiral Kimmel and, and Short, who were commanding the Hawaiian fleet, and they could have uh, counteracted the Japanese attack and saved uh, all the American lives that died, but instead Marshall, for some unknown reason, used regular courier and the message got there like five o'clock, uh, that night in, in Hawaii when Pearl Harbor had already been attacked. And then they asked him like congressional committee to explain his behavior. And he claimed that, well, if he sent it by scrambler phone, the Germans might've known about it. it made no sense. So who cares? You know, right, you're right, a you're avoiding <laughs> a disaster, right. But you know, the U.S. Yeah, had to block the Japanese empire, and that was the way for the U.S. to establish uh, an empire in the Asia Pacific. And you know, because of World War II, the U.S. acquired uh, all the military bases in Japan, they still have in Okinawa, and then all those bases you know, in, in Korea with the Korean War and throughout it, uh, the Asia Pacific. So, they-
0: Hawaii wasn't even a state at that time, so I mean, it was only U.S. territory by virtue of being a military outpost. Mm-hmm. So, like, even that whole idea of going to war after that provocation with the military outpost prevented them from getting the oil they needed when they were at war. That's a real provocation. And I guess, I mean, I've read that because of Roosevelt's position as you know being in a wheelchair, being in, you know, not, like, it was easy to stovepipe him and control him, maybe, maybe not, but that there was so maybe laying it at his feet entirely may not be fair, and
1: uh, you know I'm not. I, I, oh, no, I, well, yeah. what I read from his son was that actually he was a strong leader. Like with the Russia issues, where I support, uh, I think his policy was visionary, much like Abraham Lincoln understood that U.S. Uh, should have a cooperative relationship with Russia. It's, it's mutually beneficial, and it's important for world security. And, you know, even more so in the nuclear age. And James Roosevelt, I read uh, his memoir, and he said that because there were some uh, Russia hawks uh, in the State Department and his cabinet. One I know was Avril Harriman, who was actually Joe Biden's mentor when he first came to the Senate. And they say he's the man who started the Cold War. And he was the son of a um, uh, one of these robber barons the Gilded yeah. Age. Whose son, whose father was a major railroad tycoon, and he found the Brown Brothers Harriman bank. Yes,
0: I thought he was a big um, banker. Yeah, that's it's right. Did a lot of
1: business with the Nazis. Uh, yes I, that
0: was the thing they were they were like even in as early as world war one I, I think the banks had kind of chosen sides and it and they weren't even sure towards till the end which side of the war we were gonna yeah. end up going in on as long yeah. as we went in the war
1: and they hated the communists because the communists they lost a lot of investments when the communists nationalized the industry but james roosevelt said yeah like harriman was one of these hawks but that his father stood up to them uh, was a strong leader, whereas Truman was just a, a simpleton who they could easily manipulate, and that's why he had the destructive uh, arms, you know, Cold War and arms race. That had Wallace been there, could have been averted, and uh, oh, you know, uh, life would have been much better for millions of people. We never had the military-industrial complex. The U.S. would have transitioned from World War II into a peacetime economy. Uh-huh. And you wouldn't have this permanent warfare state. We'd be a manufacturing powerhouse because we were invested in our civilian economy instead of weaponry, which had the depleting the effect. So history was transformed. Uh, but I think Roosevelt was a strong leader despite being paralyzed. And I think he was a very smart and savvy politician.
0: That's a interesting, very interesting take on the turning point as it being pivotal at that time to entrenched the military industrial complex that it wasn't inevitable and i wonder when i think of that 18 year period between jfk's assassination and reagan being shot nixon getting taken out ford being shot at i i think of um that being the transformation of the presidency where basically after that you never had your own man i mean i guess if you consider the Bushes their own man but they are part of that cabal but like i just always thought of after that Nobody seemed to be willing to assert himself as the president with, you know, the right to make decisions. And I think it was kind of chosen that way. And I always thought Brzezinski kind of did that with Carter and Obama. Even I I know I had connections with Obama, but I wanted to pick up on something that you said about they would not tolerate a non-white empire, big empire like that. Do you think that they're tolerating that now with the rise of China? I mean, Rockefeller, for example, did contribute to the rise of China, Kissinger, Nixon?
1: Well, but I think ultimately they wouldn't tolerate that. And that's why, you know, we could have a world war. I mean, I think what we see playing out now with Russia is, you know, Russia being, uh, you know, since Putin took over, Russia has become stronger and more assertive in its region. And we see, look what they're trying to do. They're trying to undermine Putin, weaken him, bog him down in Ukraine. Uh, And, you know, the same thing with China. Uh, they're going to try and sabotage uh, the rise of China. I mean, they might tolerate it to some extent. Uh, And, and, you know, there are certain U.S. economic interests in China. I mean, they've used China, you know, corporations have, you know, used China to kind of sweatshop, uh, benefited from cheap labor, uh, you know, lack of labor laws. and and So, I mean, they put up with, uh, you know, rising China to some extent when when it's beneficial to their interest. But if China would become more assertive and more powerful, like Japan in the 1930s then we you know see similar reaction and we're starting to see that now with the starting with Obama's disastrous Asia pivot policy which has been was extended by both Trump and Biden and it's the threatening rhetoric about Taiwan and the threat of a, a war it is real because China has emerged as as another yeah non-white power although it's not really an aggressive military empire Japan was Quite aggressive military empire that ultimately overreached. You know they invaded China and killed many people in the Rape of Nanking and uh, they were moving into European colonies. I mean, China now is not really an aggressive power. They're just working to expand their economy and economic influence, like in Africa, but they're not carrying out any military aggression. Like it Europe. has, it,
0: it has occurred to me that the reason they did go into China like that, Rockefeller Nixon, yes, to get that cheap labor, and I want to. Add something to that. But it's possible that they felt it was inevitable and that you want to co-opt China by being the first in there and see if you can guide the direction it goes, because it ultimately, as soon as I get figured out how to make factories, it was going to be a problem. Um, on the world stage, so better to make it your friends, eat your own babies, as they say, then, uh, so, so, and I've also thought that possibly now the move is going to be to open up North Korea or Vietnam or some of those other places that still have that kind of super cheap wage structure that China's like growing out of. I always wonder if that's like the next thing that Vietnam and North Korea, all of a sudden are going to be, you know, the, uh, the, fa- the factories of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, But I love the how matter of fact you are about like facts that, you know, even if they're unpleasant, you don't feel compelled to give your political viewpoint or denounce like on, you know, like the Japan thing. They didn't you you could say, well, they we wouldn't tolerate that. But of course, they also did this bad thing. Um, I feel like you're. Your analysis is very professional, and I—you I, said something the other day about the first Assad, Bashar Assad's father, who I'd read about. They called him Bloody Assad. Besa- uh, Assad. He's uh, there was an uprising in Homs in 1984 that I remember. They said like maybe 10,000 people were killed, whatever. But you pointed out something I never heard anybody point out, like the mainstream media, even mainstream academia, is always always presents these things. In terms of good and evil, and it always feels like the other side is some irrational, malevolent force. But you pointed out that that they, an expression, the coup-proof government, that the authoritarianism was a reaction to outside pressures or, well, you know, inside subversion. I guess after Iran and a, a lot of things, you know. And uh, I, I think it's difficult. I mean, I just people are, seem to be less and less capable of having a dispassionate assessment of both sides of the story. And it makes it basically impossible to have an intelligent conversation about foreign affairs. Like with anybody on either side of the aisle, it feels like right now, like, do you, do you not observe that as it, does it get you down? Cause you keep, you're, you keep writing and writing to the level where it's very valuable to people think, but I just, I can't get away from how kind of just demoralizing it is to see how, how the discourse has descended.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks. I I appreciate uh, your comments. Uh, And yeah, I think the Assad, yeah, there was an excellent, I think that was, uh, I was reviewing or discussing an excellent book by A.B. Abrams uh, about Syria that sharpened my own understanding. And yeah, I think the approach I try and follow is, I mean, just try and understand the other side and you know uh i think that would be a way to peace in the world because you know whether it's russia syria uh, china korea i mean just you know people should just kind of hear out what the people of that country you know think or what their grievance is uh and you know how the people see it there and, and you know then you can kind of better understand their perspective and you can find you know common ground or you can see how you maybe. Provoking them or angering them by a certain policy, and you know maybe it's driven by a certain you know corporate interests or greed. So I mean, the population has to say no. You know, I mean, the interest is is to have harmony between nation states, and we can you know make a good living, and we, we don't have to do that through a state of permanent warfare. So you know, in the Syrian case, yeah, we should understand the appeal of so I mean, it's also common sense because the U.S. has engaged in repeated military disasters because they don't understand the country they go into. They don't understand that Assad, yeah, we may view him as a butcher here, but if you go in Syria, he has a huge amount of support, not because he's necessarily a saint, but he kept the country together. And, you know, that in the Syrian case, they had repeated, you know, France, uh, repeat, they were victims of colonialism for years and, and French intervention. And then the CIA came in and, and initiated numerous coups and, uh, supported leaders who would sell off syrian assets like i was describing boris yeltsin did earlier in the show selling off russian assets uh, so i mean you know yes it's a more authoritarian structure that's the only system they can develop when there's constant plots against their government and subversion from within and outside it has to be a more authoritarian structure and then you know saw you know once he consolidates his power he's going to enact policies that result in the economic development of their country and keep their economic resources in their country and keep the local control over it. And often the U.S. is opposing those kind of leaders, like Gaddafi did the same, uh, Putin's in that style of leader. Uh, there are leaders like that in Latin America that the U.S. constantly try to overthrow. And often these interventions are disastrous and and. Because uh, the population rallies behind that leader, they know that he's whatever flaws or authoritarian features, he's a leader that represents their people, and he's enacting policies to represent their people, and that if he's overthrown, the country uh, will be thrown to the dogs and will sell off all its uh, resources and look at the pattern, look at what's happened you know in in many cases that you know the u s has failed in cases where they have achieved regime change. And Ukraine's another example. It's caused absolute catastrophe, civil war, you know, like a calamity, the point of like the apocalypse for that country. Like Libya saw has seen t- since yeah. Gaddafi was overthrown, you know, Gaddafi reasserted uh, national control over Libya's oil. He really developed uh, Libya's economy into uh, the most the wealthiest economy in Africa. Uh, he provided free education and health care with UL revenues, and he was sponsoring, uh, African Union development projects in, in Africa, when he was overthrown, you have uh, 10, 12 years uh, of civil war. You have Al-Qaeda and Islamic fundamentalists uh, taking power. Uh, you have the reintroduction of slavery in the country. So this is like the, the apocalypse. And look at Ukraine. You know the, the Ukraine is enmeshed in civil war and destruction that's brought in Russia. And their leaders are also enacting economic policies to sell off Ukraine resources to outsiders. And many Ukrainians, if you talk to them, see as a kind of colonial imposition this post coup government. And you can look at their economic policies. Zelensky was pursuing the privatization uh, of formerly state owned industry. Uh, so it's a consistent pattern. And yeah, I think uh, the American public, if they better understood the politics, political dynamic in some of the country they intervene, there would be a broader movement against these. Disastrous foreign policy interventions that ultimately harm America because we waste our resources, we create enemies against us, and there's no need to be enemies. And we're ultimately destroying our own economy now.
0: I I noticed a pattern in some of those things, and it really frustrates me because we'll go in and we'll say Assad is bad; they don't have a liberal government there; they've got this authoritarianism, and then Assad will say, not Assad, but like I'm thinking of Egypt. I think Gaddafi probably too there are a bunch of terrorists here and we put them in jail because they're terrorists. And then we go over, we literally like, this definitely happened in Egypt, literally open the prisons and let all those people out. Then we claim that we have terrorists and have to suspend the bill of rights here. Right. So I'm just like, if you're going to, if you're going to deny terrorists a priori, their civil rights, let Assad do it. <laughs> let them do it over there. Why are you opening their prisons and then telling us that we can't have freedom either because you just went and opened their prisons? Obviously, it's they're not that stupid. I think that feeds into their plan. But that thing about Ukraine, I'm eager to read an article that I saw uh, by one of your colleagues at covertactionmagazine.com where it looked like he was talking about the food situation and I think it was about genetically modified food, and I, I'm really interested in that, so I might have to mm-hmm. talk to him too. But um, I wanted to ask you one one more question that I didn't give you a heads up. Uh, I want to hear about, I'm not going to ask you now, but I want to hear about Marilyn Monroe and RFK. And, I, and on the flip side, I want to hear about uh, the latest on RFK's assassination, and I'm hoping that you will come back and give me an hour and we can talk about like some of the those recent articles you wrote about that stuff.
1: Sure, if you like. my pleasure. Yeah, that's really juicy stuff, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it, we could never squeeze it in. But I did want to ask you one little thing that is kind of specific, uh, but I've never seen you write about this, so it might not be something you know about. But I remember Putin said this once, and I had observed it, but I hadn't drawn a line to uh, the actual person. But Putin said that after 9-11, the U.S. brought, like criminal justice, which should be a purely domestic issue, to the international level, and then I had read that that Mueller, well, he was getting credit for it, but I don't think it's creditable. Brought kind of the FBI, which should have been totally domestic, kind of abroad. Did you ever come across any of that? That we they our approach. To where we're kind of like make as an excuse crime fighting in other countries to justify going in there. And uh, and that Mueller was the kind of architect of that. Does that sound familiar to you?
1: Uh, well, uh, Robert Mueller. Um, yeah. He,
0: I think he was the FBI guy right after 9-11. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, I did a study uh, called Modernizing Repression that looked at clandestine policing operation during the Cold War. And that was, yeah, used as a pretext uh, for CIA intervention to claim that they're, you know, going in to modernize the police force, you know, professionalize the police force uh, various countries. But yeah, usually there was a, a political agenda behind that. They were trying to fortify, you know, the Cold War, anti-communist governments uh, and root out communist or leftist movements. And often th- th- those police training programs served as a cover for CIA clandestine operations, and was used to develop mass surveillance networks and to cultivate assets on you know, the police intelligence services and sometimes army. Uh, so those, yeah, there's a long pattern of the U.S. using the pretext of, you know, up, yeah. upgrading law enforcement to intervene intervene as a cover for CIA operations.
0: That's actually interesting that you put it that way because. When I think about what Putin said, he didn't actually draw that timeline and point to Mueller. I already had it in my mind that Mueller was the one who did that. But now that you mentioned it, that it's before that, it's in this book I'm reading about, Operation Gladio, how they did that in Italy. Mm-hmm. And, and that would, would point to why Putin would identify it, because it was a strictly anti-communist. It was under the guise of uh, being against the Communist Party that was emerging in Italy. So it would be on his radar in that context, even more than like Mueller and the FBI in the really in the last 20 years. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, uh, it's really, it's such a uh, privilege to be able to talk to him because people with your kind of, uh, you know, training is, is usually completely co-opted by the mainstream where they, you know, pay you a decent salary to go out there and, do journalism and then like (laughs) like color it over with, uh, with gray paint. But it's just a privilege really to be able to read your stuff and talk to you. And I'm absolutely, I really want to get into some of your specific, because you go deep on these articles and it's really such a variety of subjects that it's very interesting. Like it has your uh, covert action has the entertainment value in that the, that it's, it's just written well, very engaging. I mean, just really was quite a, delightful discovery and i think there's a real separation when you when you there's like an echo chamber or whatever depending on what angle you come from so then when i started listening to your interviews on other shows i found that there are actually quite a few resources that just happen to be uh from the left but that are completely fine revealing the hypocrisy and the corruption within the democrat party as i certainly would be of any party i don't care at all but but the stuff that I get exposed to as a libertarian is so often just like coming from the right that I don't even know if it's like searches or what, but I just never stumble upon this stuff. And I, it's just you've opened up a whole a new world of resources just by finding the shows that you've been on. So I really so I appreciate being able to talk to you.
1: Oh, great. Well, it's it's my pleasure yet to be on your show. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed this discussion. Yeah, I think you have uh, good knowledge yourself of these topics. So, so it's nice to to talk to somebody of your caliber as well.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Now, do you want to just tell, so for people to find your work, it is all at CovertActionMagazine.com, correct?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I do have a website, uh, com. And yeah, uh, I, I did also contribute, there's a website, uh, a peace history website I contributed to, uh, including an essay on the Korean War that might interest some people, called Barbarism Unleashed on the Korean War. But yeah, uh, a lot of my writings can be found, and, and other writings, uh, you know, trying to expose the, the deep state, as they say, uh, on you know, Covert Action Magazine, www.covertactionmagazine.com. And we're also uh, open to new writers. Uh, who, who can help us with our mission of exposing covert action and, and presenting good you know, critical analysis of U.S. foreign policy to transcend what you were describing, this kind of uh, poisonous and toxic political culture where anybody who you know, says anything positive about Putin or questions uh, underpinning U.S. foreign policy toward Russia as a Putin lover or Assad lover uh, or tries to explain, like, yeah, I think the point you made was important about Assad that we should understand why the Assad dynasty has survived for so many years at the helm of Syrian politics and how they developed the system uh, to meet the circumstance of Syria uh, when it was under a, a foreign attack. So uh, I'm glad that there's this show and others where we can transcend that that toxic political culture that would prevent debate and, and needed discussion on these topics uh, you in know, an, an open-minded framework
0: yeah and being able to think and get some facts out there and analyze it's really uh gives me hope and i'm super excited that you're uh that you will come back because i have like this whole other page full of questions (laughs) that i didn't get to and uh and i love your articles so i'm sure tons of more uh more to talk about will come up so thank you so very much i'll put your links in the show notes and uh and i'll shoot you the link to this show as soon as it's available thanks jeremy i hope to talk to you soon
1: Yeah, absolutely. Take care.